Thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. As a community, we are learning the way of Jesus and serving our city. Redemption Hill is kind of different. We are a collective of micro churches that gather together on Sundays to grow and connect and worship. So don't wait anymore. Join us Sundays at Boise Friends Church in the gym at 10.30 a.m. and get connected to the community you need in this season of your life. All the details you need are at redemptionboise.org. Up next is the training and teaching time from this week's gathering. Stay tuned after the sermon for more info on how to get connected. You can tell Paul's been like, he's been waiting for this moment. The whole book, Paul has been like holding back because he, what he needs to do for this young church in Ephesus is he needs to give them some hard truth and some, some down, down to earth real life examples of what it means to be in Christ. That's been the theme throughout Ephesians is that God has this plan to create one people for himself that we would be formed and shaped in the way of Jesus. And he's giving this like young baby church in Ephesus, okay, here's what it looks like. Here's what it feels like. Here's what it's like to be a part of God's people. So let's read Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do. Because you are his beloved, dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God, for a greedy person is enough to disobey him. Don't participate in the things these people do, for once you were full of darkness, But now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light. For this is for this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. It's shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret. But their evil intentions are going to be exposed when the light shines on them. For the light makes everything visible. This is why it was said, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. This is the word of the Lord. Lord God, as we read your your words to us from Paul, we pray that either we're meant for, the Lord God, we would, we would see these words and see us in them. That we would let you examine our hearts. And that, Lord God, we would make the choice to move towards you rather than away from you. That we would give you space to be Lord and King over our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. 
This passage is um, clear, it's prophetic, it's meant to be a challenge to the people in Ephesus, so that Paul's a good, he's a good spiritual parent. He's looking at his kids, and he wants to make sure that they don't live in a pretend world where it doesn't matter how they live or who they are. He wants to make sure that they aren't living in some, uh, some fantasy world where God doesn't care about them, or God doesn't care who they are or what they're doing. God deeply cares about who they are and who they're becoming. Now, this passage is not on its own, right? We've been, we've been reading along. It's deeply connected with the passage immediately before it and with the passage immediately preceding it. And the passage that Marcus preached on last week was from the end of chapter 4. And we see that this is the beginning of God. He, he says in verse 17, chapter 4, With the Lord's authority I say, to this, I say this to you, Live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. He's giving like a, a kind of a drop the gauntlet. Hey, look at the world around you. It's broken. All those Gentiles, they're hopelessly confused. Now what does it look like to live in the light? And he says their minds are full of darkness. They wander from the life that God gives because they've closed their minds. They've hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. To make out of Jews and Gentiles into himself a people set aside for his purpose. And he's giving them a picture of here's how you do it. This is what it looks like. And last week we looked at um, like primarily lies are the way of the world. The truth and light are the way of the kingdom. And then secondly, he looks at, you know, do good work with your hands. Don't steal. Generously give to others. Don't use abusive language. And then it says this in verse 30. Do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Now, we have to go back and then come back forward because this passage is primarily about in the ancient world, in most of the world today, they see goodness and evil through the lens of shame and honor, okay? We don't see the world that way. We have a little bit of shame and a little bit of honor in our culture, but they're very thin and they're not connected to our identity. We think of goodness and evil as an absolute. We think that there is right and there is wrong, and it's clear based on what we've done if we are right or if we're wrong. But in a shame-honor culture, it's different. Um, I had a friend in seminary, he was, uh, he grew up as a Korean-American, and uh, he got to college, he was in a Korean-American church his whole life, and he had, he had heard all these sermons about sin, and he didn't think that he was a sinner when he was 20 years old. Do you know why he didn't think he was a sinner? Because... Uh, actually, no, there, he, he didn't see it as a point system. There was one scorecard. In an Asian family, there's one scorecard. That's the scorecard of honor and shame. And he had never brought shame on his family. And so he didn't believe that he was a sinner. Does that make sense to you at all? <laughs> like, like, it is so foreign to us as Westerners because we see ourselves as these radical individuals where we, we have worked hard, and over the last hundred years, our pop culture has worked very hard to distinguish our individual identity from our family identity. Basically, every Disney movie for the last 30 years has been primarily on this theme. 
that you are your own person and that your family will not be honored or shamed based on what you do, so you don't need to worry about them. That's, like, that's a radical shift in the, in the history of the world because we are such tribal creatures. So when we read back on this passage, we have to read back with an Eastern mindset of honor and shame. What Paul is saying is that when you join up with God's family, these are the things that bring honor to his family, and these are the things that bring shame to his family. And that's a way of saying, this is what it looks like to be in, and this is what it looks like to be out. You have to choose. And that's the reality of our spiritual lives. We all have to choose. Do we want to be in with God's family and, and look like we're a part of God's family? Or do we want to be outside of God's family and not care about the dishonor we bring upon him? There's a lot to it. But I, I think that for us, our culture has been working hard to get rid of shame. Um, and... I think that there are some good ways that we're getting rid of shame. We're, we're, we're disconnecting our sense of value as a human from mistakes we've made. Like, we're, we're trying to give grace to people who have made mistakes and create room for them to grow and change. That's one of the reasons why our culture is saying shame is this powerful force of destruction, and it can be, because if if you are a shameful person, how can you be restored to being an honorable person? It's really difficult, and that's why you see such high-stakes shame and honor culture in the East, is because they want to control their family so that they keep their name honorable, and it's this high-stakes, you're in or you're out. If you do something that crosses a line and makes your family dishonored, you literally cannot belong because they have to displace you from their family to take the shame out of their family. Really high stakes. So there's a bad kind of shame that's not good. And shame is a power of Satan. Like, it's one way that he uses deception to hurl on us a sense of shame so that we feel like we don't... My life is full of very shameful things. But I have an honorable older brother who took all of my shame and I cast it upon him. And he was sent out from my family so that I could belong in God's family. This is the way of the kingdom where instead of us being sent out for our shamefulness, God himself sends himself out of the family so that we can belong in his family. This is what happens in Genesis 1. We go back there a lot. But when, <coughs> in Genesis 1, what does God do to deal with the sin of Adam and Eve? He covers their shame. How does he cover their shame? He kills animals, he sheds blood, and then he takes the skin of the animals and literally covers up the shame. And I don't think nakedness has anything to do with it. They felt shame, not because they were naked, but they felt shame because of what they had done, and they needed to be covered. This is the way that God cares for us. This is the way God has loved us from the very beginning, is making a place for us. But what can happen is when we enter into his family, if we continue to hurl shame on him, what we're saying to him is we don't care what Christ did. 
We don't care that he was sent off for our sake so that we could belong in his family. And this passage is all about when you join the family, you, you learn new things. You start to look more like Jesus and less like you. And our work the rest of our lives is to prepare to be a part of his kingdom, where we're literally growing so that we look more like Jesus. Yeah, the sermon's already off the rails. Too much stuff. <laughs> All right, well, let's keep going. So our, our culture, like really, we have disconnected shame from evil. Do you feel that? We have, we have made shame um, a badge of honor. We have made badness goodness in our world. Um, you look back at like the cultural revolution of the 60s. And it was this complete, they took the household codes that had been set in stone for millennia. And in the 1960s, youth culture said, you know what? We're throwing out the playbook. We're going to turn shameful things into good things. We're going to take what had been, um, you know, and, 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 and was a very restrictive systems of social mores up through the middle of the 20th century. In the 1960s, they threw out the playbook and said, we're going we're gonna to do it our own way. We're going to, we're going to take family structures and we're going to toss them out and say, even though this has been given to us from millennia past, that when I connect with someone in a sexual way, we create a family together, that was thrown out. They took the ethic of work and they turned work into an evil rather than a good. They took connection and community and in fi with family and they threw it out. Um, they took uh, drugs, which had been a, a gift from God to help us deal with pain and turned it into something that destroyed our lives. They took all these evil things and turned them into good. We lost our shame. But that wasn't happening in a vacuum in the 1960s. The reason why the Cultural Revolution happened is that the American government lied to our people, sent millions of young men to Vietnam, told them to do incalculable evil, and then when they came home, the social contract between their families, the authorities in their culture, and how they saw themselves because of the evil that they had done, the moral hazard that they had entered into by entering into Vietnam had destroyed their sense of evil. They had been so desensitized to evil because they, that was the only way they could survive that then they brought back with them the seedlings of the Cultural Revolution that would turn evil into good. We're living in a moment where we're doing that again. What we're seeing in our culture is that people are saying, uh, when, like, just for example, there's numerous situations in church and government and business where leaders have been caught doing very evil things. Like, I could, I could lay them out for you. It'd be very depressing. <laughs> but a generation ago, what did those leaders do when they got caught? They apologized, they stepped down, and they had to be, their image had to be re rehabilitated. What do those people do today? 
they, they not only run for office, but they take the things that they've done and they turn them into badges of honor. They literally turn shameful things and make them into honorable things and take honorable things and turn them into shame. And that's the same thing that had happened in the ancient world in Ephesus. We live in a time of shamelessness. Shamelessness is evil. Of following the example of Christ, he loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice to us, a pleasing aroma to God. It starts with, the invitation isn't, hey, do good. The, invita- the invitation isn't, hey, follow this moral code. The invitation is, join the family. Imitate your Father in heaven. And this, this word where he says, because you are his dear children, that's a bad translation. This is, this is beloved. This is the agape children. Because you are the ones who he has invited into his family, live a life filled with love. It's not don't fill, don't fill your life with evil. It's fill your life with love. That's the starting point for all transformation is we look into a vision of how we want to become and we move our lives that direction because trying to get rid of something that's evil is almost impossible without moving towards choosing to have a vision for something that's good. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Is he's, Paul is showing us this is what we're doing. It's not just in a vacuum. We're following Jesus. We're, we're looking at what he's done. And then he says this. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. So what does it look like to love? What it looks like to love is to follow Jesus. What did Jesus do? He died to himself, gave his life as a, as a sacrifice so that it would create a pleasing aroma to the Father. So everything that we're reading here is, is meant to give, okay, what does it look like? That's, that's what we're doing. So let's keep going. There, let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. These, this is the triad, and... Like, this is an all-inclusive triad. I know that it seems like it's really specific. Sexual morality. Okay, what is that? It's the Greek word porneo. It, it basically meant anything outside of sex within marriage. Like anything outside of this covenant relationship between God and his people where he's going to create life out of our loving relationship. It's what sex was designed for. Anything outside of that is broken, and it creates incalculable brokenness in our world. I, I don't think I should have to, like, demonstrate for that for you, but when we live our sexuality as if it doesn't matter at all, what it creates is a world filled with babies who are unknown and unwanted, babies who are killed because they're unknown and unwanted. It creates broken relationships and fractured families, it creates generational distress financially. That's what happens when sex gets outside of its intended boundaries. Without fail, that's the reality. We, we live in a world that's, you know, more than half of kids born in America are born into non-intact families. And almost everyone who's poor in our country started out in a non-intact family. That's the best, that's the best predictor of poverty is having a single parent. That's it. And so what, when, you, when we talk about the brokenness in our world and the injustices of our world, 
the way that we view sexuality has this total impact on what is good and what is right. Sexual immorality is vitally important to God's people because it's one clear way in every generation on the planet that we look different than the world around us. Followers of Jesus pursue sexual morality because it brings goodness into the world. It's a gift to the world around us that we give them a vision of what that looks like. And too often we've treated it as if it were, you know, this, this ancient, medieval, like, old way of seeing the world, but it still is good news to a world around us that doesn't understand. Sexual morality is powerful. It creates a counterculture that, is, that fights against the waves of brokenness in our world. Secondly, impurity. Now, it, I, I know that for you and I, like, honestly, that makes even less sense than shame and honor because we don't live in a purity culture. Um, but what this is primarily talking about is purity in your worship. And for the ancient world, that was very difficult because if they wanted to be accepted as a part of the Roman society in Ephesus, what did they have to do? They had to participate in the worship of, of other gods. And so for them, this was saying, I'm the Roman Ephesian version of Diana slash Artemis. Like we talked about at the beginning of this sermon series, that they're the temple of Artemis or Diana in Ephesus was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, seven times the size of the Parthenon. This was one of the most religious cities in the Greek world, period. And so for them to say, I'm not going to participate, meant that they didn't have access to meat, they didn't have access to grain, they didn't have access to commerce because they didn't participate in the cultic system. That's one of the reasons why the early church was filled with entrepreneurs and business owners was because they had to find ways to make money outside of the traditional ways that people made money. Now, in Ephesus in particular, the number one industry was silversmiths because they made little idols to Artemis or Diana. They made, they, and, and there was a brouhaha in, in Acts where Paul gets almost like killed because he's above all things that we are not going to seek the approval of our neighbors when there are, and, and here's the thing, it's not hard to follow Jesus in our culture. It really isn't. It'll cost you almost nothing in, in American culture today to follow in the way of Jesus. People have these imaginary ways that we are so, so deeply, um, that we are treated like martyrs here in our country, but you're not. Does it cost you anything to not worship other gods? Unlikely. That's the reality. It's, we have a very free way that we can um, worship our God. And so for them, this was a big thing. For us, it's a pretty small thing. And then lastly, greed. And, I, man, we just, it's so easy to ignore that one and be like, yeah, yeah, greed, greed. And it's just like that last one on the list. But that's the one, we live in the richest country in the face of the planet and also of the ancient world. We, we have access to more information and more pleasure and more leisure than anyone on the face of the planet ever. And so greed is the one that's the risk. That's the one that's like the threat to our souls because we want to take all of the riches of our culture and all the riches of our bank accounts and the freedoms that we have 
And as radical individuals, we want to spend it on ourselves. We think about our week, and we start with what brings me pleasure. And then we go to what do I have to do to maintain my wealth? And then we go to what will, my, what will I be arrested for for not caring for my kids? And then we go to what is the needs of the world around me? Like it's like, it's way far down there. But God has like literally entrusted with us the wealth of humankind. And for the most part, we've basically treated it like, oh, it's like it, it, we, we swim in money. Like in, in our culture, we just swim in money and access and, and services and goods that are just unheard of in all of hi- human history. And we are so driven by our work and our greed that we can't even see it. It's like a fish trying to describe the water that they breathe and live in. But what God wants us to know is that if we want to be a part of his family and we, we want to bring honor rather than shame, these are the three things. And here's how they're universal. Sexual immorality, it's all about appetite. It's just saying I'm going to pursue pleasure at all costs. That is real. That's everything. That's all the food and the drink cycle that pleasure is then released and it gets weaker and weaker and weaker so we, we seek more and more pleasure till we can't receive pleasure and then we kill ourselves seeking pleasure. Appetite is this destructive force. Secondly, impurity. This is all about approval. So w- all the things that we do to get the world to like us that is destructive. All the ways that you people please your boss so that you feel good about your position at your work and it destroys your family because you're not at home. All the ways that you put your mother or your mother-in-law's approval ahead of the needs of your kids and the needs of your spouse. All the ways that you look around the world and say, how do I shape myself so I'll be approved by them? Rather than asking, how can I be approved by God? And greed is all about primarily power or ambition. We want to gather as much greed as we can. We want to gather as much goods as we can. We want to gather as much privilege and position as we can so that we can coerce other people into doing things for us. That's what money is. Money is me saying, I have this power, something you want, and I'm going to get you to do what I want by leveraging the fact that I have more money than you to get it. It's like anytime, anytime I think about like domestic servants or like having help with my life or my family, it's like I'm saying that I'm, I have so much money that I'm going to get you to take your life and spend it to make my life happen. That's so much of the brokenness of the world. All of it is wrapped in these three little things. Morality, impurity, and greed. Still just bad looking at this stuff and getting down into it. It's, it's easy to, uh, like some of you are, are shame addicts and you use it to drive yourself. And so you're going to take this and you're going to like, you're going to make a little uh, journal and you're going to talk about all the things you've done wrong, and then you're going to use all the ways that you feel shame to propel you to do the right thing. And you have this little addiction cycle around shame. You get it. Crystal gets it. 
um, you're, you, you're, you're just like, you're eating this up. Like your, your family used shame as, as the tool. And so you've learned how to use shame as a tool to drive you. That's not what this is for. That's not the way that the family of God looks like. When we see our shame, when we see our impurity, our immorality, and our greed, the answer isn't to double down and try harder. The answer is, my shame has been covered. There was this beautiful sacrifice made for me. And I'm going to heap on Jesus all my shame and all my brokenness. And then I'm going to look at my, my good older brother, Jesus, who took care of me. And I'm going to say, how, do, how can I be like him? I'm going to grow in, in finding ways to honor my father so that the world around me sees how good it is to be a part of his family. It's a process of transformation. This is a prophetic word from Paul. And some of you didn't know how far you were away from Jesus. And you need to see your shame. Some of you are just being ravaged by addiction. Some of you are being broken by your pursuit of wealth. Some of you are really struggling because your approval, you don't care what God wants at all. You care about what the world wants. And if you're feeling that way, and it's, it's an honest look at the shame in your life, God wants to connect the evil in our lives with shame so that we seek relief from our shame in Him. That's what He wants. He wants to reconnect evil and shame into the thing that it was meant to do because God gave us pain and shame so that we wouldn't want to stay where we were. That's the problem with disconnecting shame from evil is that we're willing to stay in evil because we no longer feel the shame of the broken relationships we're causing. So, how do we do that? Well, we start saying primarily, God, you have access to my life. We let, we let the text read us. Instead of asking, how can, I, how can I get this to read the way I want it to? which is that sexual immorality doesn't matter, that um, my, my greed doesn't matter, that my impurity of, of life doesn't matter. Instead, we let it read us, reconnect shame and evil, and then we, we go to Jesus and we say, you have access to my life to change me. You're Lord, you're my rabbi, and if he is your rabbi, you're going to say, Okay, I'm, I'm walking with you, I'm living with you, and you're going to point out the places where I'm broken and that I don't look like I'm a part of the family so that I can change and so that I can grow and so that I can start participating in bringing life to the world rather than destruction. And if God doesn't have access, if Jesus doesn't have access to poke around at these places in your life, i got to tell you, he's probably not your Lord. If he doesn't have access and you don't care what he thinks, you're not a part of his family. You have said, you know what, I'm going to go my own way and do my own thing and be my own Lord. And so that requires like a whole other heart transplant where you say, God, my shame and my brokenness are not connected anymore and I need you to bring it back together so that I can experience the healing of being covered with Jesus' shame in my place. So that I can start the process, this continual process of growing in the way of God. 
And so I want to I want to I want to give you two options today <laughs> as as we finish up. We're going to pray, and I, I want I want you to receive this challenge as a as a gift rather than a threat. That's what it looks like to join in with God's family is when when He challenges us by pointing out the evil in our lives and in our culture, we run to Him and say, "Show us," instead of running away and seeing it as a threat to our survival. Are you willing to give? God, access to those places. The place where God needs to keep forming me. And I want him to have right access to it. So I'm going to invite the band up and let's, let's just pray together and give God space. Lord Jesus, we, this is a hard word from, from Paul that um, hasn't gotten any easier with 2,000 years. It's convicting, it's challenging, it's, it's demanding, and it's revealing. And when he talks about living in the light, it looks like giving you space to, to take this stuff that's broken inside of us. Our sexual immorality, our love of this world, and our greed, and we give you the right to shine your holy light in those places and challenge us. and that we live in the light. Give us the trust to believe that you love us so much that you're going to not only not only cover up our sin with, with your shame, not only forgive our sins and the debts that we owe, not only destroy our old life, but build us into your kingdom people. God, I pray that we would look more like you because we give you space to work in our lives. Keep hounding us, Lord. Keep chasing us. Keep coming after us because we need you. We need you desperately. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our weekly podcast. Make sure to subscribe to get them in your podcast feed. You can find ways to connect with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org slash connection. Fill out the form for a free gift from us. We care about you and want to help you find your way back to God. Follow at Redemption Boise on Instagram for regular encouragement.